Welcome to What's Eric Eating, Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Angelo Emiliani from Cafe Louie and Angie's Pizzas coming up in a little bit. But first, I'm joined by my co-host this week. She's the owner of Avondale Food and Wine, Mary Clarkson. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm great, Eric. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me once again. Thanks for doing this. Let us dive right into the news of the week. Topic number one, big news in the world of Houston bars. Night Shift partners Justin Ware and Patrick Abelos have been bought out of their ownership stake in the business by their business partner, Sin Nombre Hospitality, which is the group that is behind Giant Leap Coffee and are also Angelo's partner in Cafe Louie. Chef Danny Leal is now serving as the general manager. Mary, this is a sensitive situation, and I don't want to speculate about the reasons why Justin and Patrick were bought out. Sid Nombre wouldn't, didn't want to comment on that. I asked Justin and Patrick to comment. They very politely declined. But you are an attorney. You work with restaurants. I'm sure you've seen partnership agreements where you know a talented chef or a bartender gets involved with a hospitality company how are these deals structured and and how does this usually work where partners are are suddenly bought out of a business unexpectedly from at least from from my perspective this was an unexpected development without getting into the specifics of this particular closure this the way that these agreements are struck has a ton of provisions meaning if certain conditions aren't met, whether they're financial or other obligations, maybe goals, maybe um, other you know things like morality clauses, all sorts of things can be put in there. And if they don't reach certain sales goals, or they're not you know uh, making rent or contributing terms per the terms of their agreement, uh, sometimes there's you know an allowance for one partner to buy the others out. Um, know exactly what happened here, but for them to end this so abruptly means that there was definitely, you know, some type of trouble in paradise that instigated the buyout of one of the other. And the problem here with something like this is this bar was made with these two bartenders in mind. I mean, Night Shift was incredibly closely identified with these two bartenders who were the face of it. And so, Unfortunately, a lot of times in Houston, you have money that comes behind restaurant or bar groups, and they don't have any experience running restaurants or bars. And I know Root Lab is is backing Angelo, a completely different structure than the night shift is. But you know, there's always it always worries me when the talent doesn't have as much control as I think that they should, and an experienced operator takes over. Um, so it worries me about the future of Night Shift, if we're being completely honest about the longevity of it. Right. I mean, you know, Night Shift is a bar that you and I have been to uh, before. It's, it's a bar we've talked about on the show quite a bit. Uh, it's a place I've really enjoyed. And, you know, I had Patrick and Justin on to talk about their different experiences that led to the creation of Night Shift and, and all of the influences that they absorbed and and put their spin on to, to bring it to fruition. And, you know, also, I mean, they, they assembled a really talented staff to work alongside them. And so, 
without them there, I, I mean, I, I wonder if the staff is going to stick around. I, I wonder if, if it's going to feel the same. There's not a chance the staff sticks around. I'll just go ahead and say that right now. So I, I hope that, you know, I hope they do, but they follow the talent and I don't see, I don't see the staff hanging out here for more than a month. So that's where being an inexperienced operator and a labor shortage market really is going to sting. Now, I, I will say that the one thing that I am sort of uh, cheered by is that Danny Leal is sticking around because, you know, I, obviously you're going for the drinks and the atmosphere. It's, it's a bar first, but I, I do think. And the churros. <laughs> right. Well, right. I, I do think Danny's food is a major part of, of the draw. It's, it's affordable. It's approachable. It's flavorful. It's, it's been consistently well executed. You know, I've gone for the steak night. I've gone for burger night. I've, and, and the churros, of course, are mandatory. We've talked about that a lot. So that he's still there, actually, I, I think is a good sign. You know, I, I do wonder about, you know, if you, can, if you can assemble a bar staff that can sort of hold the line, you know, stick with the current menu, and then, you know, maybe find someone else who's a personality to kind of run the thing that has a bit of a following. You know, I, I, I don't think they're as doomed as you are, I guess, is kind of my point. I say you give it a month or two if you're the operator and if you're hemorrhaging money and you're losing money, you call the loss and then you, shop, you start shopping the space to an experienced operator and that's how you regain some of your losses. But time will tell. I always wish everyone the best in this. His food's great. I just think staffing is going to be a huge issue and... It would not be the first place that's closed due to lack of staff. Well, well, let me just say in, in deference to Sin Nombre, you know, I talked to one of Logan Beck, one of the partners, they are determined to operate night shift as night shift, at least for now. So I, I would say for people who like night shift, go support it, go support it, because this is definitely a difficult situation. And I, I would like to see it stick around just because it's a place I've enjoyed and I, I admit, I, I haven't been since this change, uh, but I will, I will make a point of visiting there soon for, to form my own impressions of what it's like without Justin and Patrick, because I, I think the remaining staff deserve that opportunity, and I think uh, Chef Danny deserves that opportunity. Yeah, and I mean, this is a, this is a big win for the East End and East Downtown to have a bar, a bar of this quality there, so I don't want it to go anywhere. I just hope that whatever iteration or shape it takes going forward still has the same um, quality of, of food and beverages that we've come to love. Absolutely. And, and like I said, I think, I think Chef Danny's presence bodes well for that. I think the hospitality group understands how special Night Shift is. And so I would like to see it uh, persist in its current form. All right, let's move on to topic number two. Chris Shepard announced that he will not move forward with Everlong Bar, which was going to replace UB Preserve on Westheimer. And instead, Underbelly Hospitality will concentrate on Georgia James, which right now is in the old one-fifth space on Westheimer, but is moving to a, a new location in the uh, Regent Square mixed-use development. Uh, and then they're also working on Pastore, a new Italian restaurant that will be located next to the new George James. Of course, this has been a very 
busy time for underbelly hospitality. They they left their sort of cradle at 1100 Westheimer. So that meant moving Georgia James and closing Haymerchant. They're working at their new, you know, one of their new, in addition to Regent Square, they're, they've established a major presence at the Houston Farmers Market with both Underbelly Burger and Wild Oats, the Texas-inspired restaurant that Michael Fulmer and I talked about quite a bit last week. Mary, I, I say all that to say to you, what do you think about, about all these changes? I mean, I, I think it's been a little bit confusing for diners that, you know, we're closing some things, we're opening some things. It, it just feels like it's, it's a little bit of a, like a, a tumultuous time for, for underbelly hospitality. You know, some of this is not unexpected given that, you know, his lease was up at underbelly and, you know, obviously I've experienced the same struggles in Montrose. The rents have gone up very quickly and dramatically in the landscape of Montrose is changing. At least he was smart enough to anticipate that he was going to have to make drastic changes. I'm not, you know, the developer deal at the farmer's market makes sense, right? He's kind of what the brand ambassador for that whole development. So I'm not surprised to see him pop up there with his burger joint and his restaurant wild oats. I mean, those make sense. Those are very friendly deals to Chris. He probably didn't have to put up a ton of um, capital to make those happen. So of course you'd want to transition there. We, just uh, to be clear, his business partner, Todd Mason is the developer is, is the principal for the firm that's redeveloping the farmer's market. So yes, that's a, that was Chris, Chris has always been part of the plan. Uh, you know, underbelly hospitality has always been part of the plan for the farmer's market. So the farmer's market makes sense for him very much. So, so I, I completely understand that transition. Um, him not renewing heading forward with the UB preserves uh, new concept in that space. That doesn't entirely surprise me, to be honest. I mean, it would be his last in Montrose after he moves Georgia James. Um, I know that wasn't probably the easiest of spaces for him. Um, I think Nick Warren is talented. And if it didn't work, you know, with Nick at the helm there in that particular space, for whatever reasons I'm not familiar with, then... I think it's hard to reinvent that right now, especially again with the labor shortages that we're having. Uh, and then the Georgia James moving to the new development off of Allen Parkway. Other developer, developers, probably a lot of incentives that they gave Chris to be there as an anchor tenant. And I get it. I mean, why wouldn't you want to take of having a freshly newly built space with all that density that's coming online there? So I think that's a smart move in terms of density and walkability and people need that that once it opens i know it's opening keeps getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back though as probably every restaurant opening in houston is right everyone is held up by delays in materials everyone is held up by delays in permitting they they do think they'll be open in may with pastore to follow in you know july maybe august it depends a little bit uh i will say i i think We've, we've talked about the decision to relocate Georgia James quite a bit. You know, they, they converted a bar into underbelly and then they converted underbelly into Georgia James. And I think it makes a lot of sense for Georgia James, given that it's kind of his, now it's kind of his signature restaurant. 
to have its own dedicated home in a, in a brand new space, two stories, right, with the, the kitchen that's custom designed to, to be a steakhouse, an upstairs lounge with a will be a very dynamic bar scene. I mean, this is going to be kind of his, you know, most prestigious restaurant, I guess. And and so I think the the change makes a lot of sense. And and I think I think from a diner's perspective, he spent sort of the last five years sort of testing ideas at one fifth. And, you know, I think we're going to see over the next five or 10 years, like the consolidation, right? The, the, the realization of all of these ideas and, and moving forward in, in a much more stable way, you know, with Georgia James and Pastore and Wild Oats, right? And, and hopefully all three concepts sort of catch on and are successful and, and do very well. Yeah, I think the irony is that now that he's explored fast casual with the burgers, I mean, I think that might be the sleeper hit of his new concepts. Obviously, with the prices of meat and everything going up in terms of the steakhouse, that it scares me a little bit, but Houstonians love a steakhouse and support the hometown. So I think Georgia James will be his crown jewel, but I I think the secret winner will probably be the burger joint. Well, and it wouldn't surprise me to see more locations of Underbelly Burger in the future. I I mean, again, Todd Mason is his business partner has purchased a piece of property in Spring Branch and they're marketing that for, for future tenants. And so I, I am not reporting that Underbelly Burger is coming to Spring Branch, but it would not surprise me to learn in the, the months to come that that is happening. Yeah, very family-friendly concept in that neighborhood would, would destroy. It would, it would do very, very well. Right. And, and as we've talked about, I really like Underbelly Burger. I think it's a good burger. I always enjoyed the cease and desist burger at Hay Merchant. This is very similar. Those Sidewinder fries with the ranch powder are a total winner. And I like the kind of retro style and the the retro kind of doo-wop soundtrack. It's very nostalgic for me. And I think it's it's just a it's a it's very well executed. Just like I think Wild Oats is very well, it's got a very clear vision. It's a place I've had two good meals and a place I look forward to going back to. Absolutely. All right. Let us move on to topic number three. Ben Berg, the proprietor of Berg Hospitality, which is the restaurant group behind all kinds of places, B&B Butchers, the Annie Cafe, Turner's, Trattoria Sofia, uh, has announced that BB Italia, which was the restaurant they operated in the old Carmelo's space in the energy corridor uh, it closed last year will be reopening in Sugarland town square uh, later this spring or maybe this summer. Mary, I, I don't know that you ever made it to BB Italia, but do you have thoughts on that? Uh... I did. Oh, well, good. What are your thoughts on BB Italia? Uh, I mean, I think that type of concept in general will go, it's like plug and play, right? You could put that type of, concept in any neighborhood and you know italian's a nice category it's an easy category families like it everyone everyone's gonna love this i mean as long as the food is executing i think that would be my only thing i think of i think of rice grad student and marketing or you know whatever college has the best marketing program in the state should do a 
masterclass on Ben Berg. I mean, he's a genius at opening all of these concepts so quickly, including his you know, concept that he's just done. I mean, the design, the layout, the decor, the service always hits very, very high. I would say the one thing that lags for me a lot of times with his concepts is the food. I think his food a lot of times is good, not great. I'm just going to say it. Not B&B Butchers. I think it's killer. Um, but you know what? I think most consumers, it, he hits it out of the park with them. And far be it for me to judge him otherwise, because he knows better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, I had a couple of good meals at BB Italia. I, like you, I mean, I'm a sucker for sort of Italian-American food. I, I think that you know, spaghetti and meatballs, lasagna, pepperoni pizza, chicken piccata, you know, give me, give me all of those things, right? That It's very much comfort food for me. It's very family friendly. It, it can be reasonably priced or as reasonably priced as, as restaurants can be these days. And so I think for all of those reasons, it's a good fit for Sugarland. And, you know, there's not a lot of locally owned restaurants in Sugarland Town Square. I mean, I, I admit it's not a place that I spend a lot of time, but just thinking about kind of the nearby Italian options, there's a, there's a chain Carabas that's been there since, I don't know, since I was in high school. Uh, there's a Grimaldi's pizza that's done very well, but there's not something locally owned. And, and I think, you know, that, that people will really embrace having a locally owned restaurant there. That's, that's um, maybe a little bit more, personal and a little bit more willing to sort of cater to them from a a service perspective. Yeah. And if I had to give any advice to restaurateurs or bar or any hospitality concept right now, it's if you've got one concept inside the loop, that's amazing. If you're going to do a second concept, look to these suburbs. I mean, all these concepts do very, very well. Sugarland, Woodlands, Katy, Kingwood, you know, Clear Lake. Uh, It's just incredible the growth that's happening in these suburbs and i think a lot of times we focus so much on what's going on in the center of the city but ben berg's very smart to be going out to the suburbs mary i'm going to say that does it for the news of the week we'll be right back with our restaurants of the week stick around Mary, for our restaurants of the week, I want to talk to you about our recent meal at Le Tab. This is the French restaurant in the Galleria. You know, it's, it, it, I would say it's, it's a restaurant in transition. You know, we, it, it was sort of uh, fine dining French for a long time. You know, it closed longer than, than a lot of other restaurants during the pandemic. It reopened last year and it's kind of lost some of that, that fine dining atmosphere you know it was known for for rolling the carts down the middle of the dining room and doing you know a ribeye flame table side or you know whole soul filleted or or even uh roast chicken for two carved at the table you know all of those elements are gone but it's still it's still a very comfortable restaurant it's still a very elegant restaurant and so let me just put it to you like like how do you see it sort of fitting in in the Galleria area or maybe among the various French dining options that we have in Houston? Oh, okay. I think, 
I think it's hard to be Latov in 2022 for a lot of reasons. You've got Turner's next door, which if you're going to do fine dining anywhere near that strip, I mean, Turner's is, is the pinnacle of that. I do think Latov has a great location and the service was friendly and the room was nice, albeit relatively sparse that evening. And there weren't any misses on the food. I mean, the food was well executed, but like you're, you know, implying and saying it, it did feel kind of soulless. I know it was a weekday, but I don't know. I just think the energy and the story of Latab has been told and it's not as compelling as it once was for both the offerings on the menu and just, you know, it's kind of run through its cycle. And so I think maybe it's going to be really hard for them to compete with other French concepts in town. I mean, if you're going to go the more casual route, like why not go sit at Cafe Rabelais in the village and it's quaint and it's intimate, right? Um, if you're going to go more fine dining, there's lots of people about to come online with fine dining. You still have artisans, but uh, a new French restaurant, even though it's not supposed to be French uh, per the terms of the lease, is opening across from Brasserie 19 and Revoke's shopping center. Uh, so I'll be looking forward to see what that becomes because they're throwing a lot of money at that. I just, I don't know. The story for Latab for me is, it was a beautiful, beautiful experience, but it's, there's, there's so much competition in this landscape. Uh, you know, we could go to Tony's and probably have a lot of French influenced dishes. So I, I don't know. It's not not so. Well, right. I mean, Etoile is. Right, I, I mean, Etoile is right down the street in Uptown Park. You know, I think that. Yeah, and I, arguably that might even be more higher than Latabas currently for dinner. I don't know. It's interesting. Right, and I I sort of share that with you because because there everything that we ate was properly prepared. Right, my my octopus was meaty and the the sauce was flavorful and it was nicely cooked. I had a risotto that was properly al dente with, you know, shrimp and lobster and the, the, the shrimp and lobster were, had a great texture and, and the, the stock for the risotto had, had deep lobster flavor. And so like from a technical perspective, it was well executed. It was, it was a properly prepared meal, but looking around the dining room, there, there weren't that many people there. And I've had, you know, I have these great memories of going and, you know, Valerio Lombardozzi is the, is the maitre d' and the manager and, and is, is like really one of the most warm, personable front of house personalities in the city and experiencing him carving that chicken for two or flaming the steak table side or, you know, deboning a, a whole filet of sole is such a memorable experience and and it's all gone and so you know it's it's not that i didn't enjoy the food that we ate but the the excitement around latab i think is sort of faded and so i don't know what its place is anymore and i don't quite understand i i don't know how to recommend it to people i guess is is kind of where and and i had high hopes right i was excited to go there with you and it just kind of left me cold. And, and, and I don't like to be this negative when we talk about restaurants on this podcast, but, but I also want to be honest with the audience about 
our experience. And that's sort of where I'm at. I think it's audiences, probably people staying in or around the Galleria expense accounts type of diners. I just think for the price point, yes, it feels more casual in there and the menus more casual in there, but you and I speak about this frequently. The cost of dining up dining out has gone up so much over the past months and couple of years that for the price point, you know, while it's reasonable, it's still an expensive proposition to dine here. So, you know, for $200 for two people, where are you going to go spend that money? And for dinner, there's a lot of places in town you can go. And yes, you could get by here less expensively, but you know, I had a steak that was beautifully prepared. I had a cucumber and avocado salad to start cocktail and a glass of wine. You know, even if I had gotten something less expensive, you're still at plus or minus 150 to 200 bucks for two people. And I just think people want experiences post COVID, even though we're not really out of COVID, I guess. And 200 bucks. I I love that. Where would be the top 10 places you would eat for 200 bucks for two people? There's a, there's a lot of great restaurants in the city and it's good. It's just not super compelling. I think that's what it comes down to. It's just not as compelling. And and you're right that $200 for, for two gets you certainly to Nancy Sussel, certainly to Riel, certainly to Nobis, you know, all restaurants I would rather go to uh, would get you into wild oats pretty happily if you wanted something new. You know, I've had a couple of good meals at Chivos. Cata Rabata. Right. On and on. So I'm going to say we're going to put a pin in the top and, and we're running just a little bit long, but just briefly, I do want to mention that I had a really enjoyable uh, catch-up dinner at Helen, a restaurant I had not been to in several years, uh, certainly pre-pandemic. You know, William Wright, who was the chef that opened that restaurant, is departed, but you know, Tim Fayola, who's been there for a long time as the, the operating partner and the general manager is still there. They have a, a dynamic uh, young chef who trained under William, who's executing the menu, like a really expertly prepared piece of Bronzino, you know, served with like uh, tomatoes and, uh, and some roasted okra that I really enjoyed, uh, a really nicely cooked uh, piece of octopus that, that you know, greens and, and feta pie that's kind of their version of Spanakopita is a signature item for them and, and still uh, very delicious. And, and just, you know, I hadn't been to Helen in a long time. It's, it's still a really fun place to dine. It's intimate. It's warm. That, that sort of kicked up Greek food is, is really compelling. And, uh, you know, just a reminder that sometimes these, these older sort of restaurants fall off the media radar a little bit, but they, they're still out there and they're still doing a good job. Absolutely. I love, I love this restaurant when it first opened. I have been back since I think it's still firing on all cylinders and relevant and serving delicious food in a great location. All right, Mary, I'm going to say that does it for the restaurants of the week. Thank you very much. Thank you. I will be right back with Angelo Emiliani. I am joined this week by the chef owner of Angie's Pizzas and Cafe Louie coming soon to the East End, Angelo Emiliani. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. Thanks for doing this. Nominally, you're here because you're participating in 
Chef Fest, which is taking place April 10th at Harvest Green out in Richmond. So yep. let's knock that portion of the interview out. Let's do it. Tell me a little bit about your role at Chef Fest. Uh, have you decided on what you're serving? And I, I mean, you don't do a ton of events. So, so what about Chef Fest appeal to you? So um, I'll be cooking. I'll have a little booth set up there. Yeah, we don't do a lot of events because the oven is such a pain in the ass to move. Um, am I allowed to curse on the show? You are, yes. <laughs> now, let me just say, this: the, the cursing is heard on the podcast, but there's also a radio version. And so okay. the more you curse, the more <laughs> editing our producer has to do to take the curses out for the radio version. I wouldn't do that to him. I'll be right. good. Yeah, so we actually got really lucky. Um, so Texas Oven Co., he's building an oven on site. And this, this was happening before I was invited to Chef Fest, actually. Um, I set them up with, with Oven Dave um, to build an oven out there. Um, and then probably a month later, they, I got invited to Chef Fest. And so, yeah, we got lucky because otherwise I'm not moving that thing. It's in my yard. It's staying there. Um, and, yeah, I have figured out what I'm going to cook. Um, so we're not doing pizza pizza, but it's still pizza. <laughs> So it's pizza, pizza Bianca, pizza Bianca. So essentially a flatbread. It, it's just, it's a pizza with no topping. So we're going to do uh, pizza Bianca. It'll have like rosemary, uh, olive oil, malden salt. It'll get cooked in the wood oven. And then we'll serve it on the side with a, a chickpea puree. So we get chickpeas from Barton Spring Mill. Um, really amazing tahini that's produced in Egypt, actually. I don't call it hummus just because I don't want to make anyone mad. I mean, it's, it is hummus at the end of the day, but whatever. Um, and then we're going to serve that with some veggies from the farm. So we have, uh, we're going to do carrots and beets and we're going to ferment half of them. And the other half are going to get roasted in the oven. We'll kind of toss them together. Um, so it'll have like some nice acid and basically people can build like a little, uh, little sandwich if they want, or, you know, uh, scrape it through the hummus. Uh, should be pretty good. Yeah, and and it's a really uh, dynamic lineup at, at Chef Fest. I know Michelle Wallace from Gatlin's Barbecue mm-hmm. is doing it. Jeff Potts from Ninety Three Till, David Cordua, Victoria Elizondo, Evelyn Garcia, who's uh, who's on Top Chef, and yeah, uh, Martha Wilcox now. from Indianola. So it's a it's a solid roster. Yeah, it's a good crew. It's kind of like. It's all over the place in a good way. You know, like some some people who've been in the game here for a long time, like David, obviously, and, you know, some newcomers like myself. Um, but, yeah, I think they got a good crew. Yeah, we, we had a good time. We met up once before, um, and, you know, everyone seems to like each other, which affects the the event very little, but it's, it's nice, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you know, as long as everybody's happy to be there, I think the food tastes better. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we, you know, I'm close with the the two, I guess, lead farmers over there, uh, Josh and Nick, and they're fantastic. And we, we're, we're lucky to have a relationship with them. So when, when I told them I was doing, I was super stoked to see them at the farm and, and glad to work with them always. All right. Well, let's move on to kind of other topics. Um, let me just sort of start. I mean, it's not sort of an obvious thing that, I mean, you grew up in Houston, right? That's true. How did you sort of become interested in the world of professional cooking? Yeah, that's a good question. So my mom uh, was a uh, 
a chef, I suppose. She did a lot of private chefing though. She never, she never worked in restaurants. And so, you know, cooking has always been a really large part of our, our family. I mean, even, I mean, obviously my little sister, Louie <laughs> cooks a lot now. Um, but also my other sister, Pilar, I mean, she, she's always in the kitchen. Um, and long story short, I kind of always worked in, in restaurants growing up just to, to have a job. Um, and then, uh, funny enough, I was working at Carabas back in the day as a terrible bus boy. Um, and I would just like to see the kitchen and, you know, it seemed interesting and, you know, I think it kind of sparked my eye a little bit. And then eventually I started stodging around in the kitchen at different places. Actually, my first kitchen job, real kitchen job, I don't know if real kitchen job is actually a good way to describe it, was at a bowling alley. Um, that bowling alley is not open anymore. I don't remember what it's called. It's a very long time ago now. But, you know, that's how I first cut my teeth, making uh, frozen French fries and sandwiches and stuff like that. Um, so that's kind of how it got started. But it's a long and winding story for sure. <laughs> Yeah, and and I I don't necessarily want to get too into the twists and turns. Yeah, but eventually, yeah, yeah. you made your way to Los Angeles, yeah. and started working for Chris Bianco, who uh, arguably the most famous pizzaiolo in America. You know, a James yeah. Beard Award winner. How did you come to work for for Chris at LA, and and what did you? How long were you there, and kind of what did you what did you learn from him? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's actually it's a funny story. Um, how I got there. Um, so I worked in Napa for a little bit um, for some of the Thomas Keller restaurants and I was working at Ad Hoc and the chef at the time ended up being the culinary director for Tartine. Um, so I actually was in Austin and I was looking to make a move and I was like, I was planning for a while. I was either uh, going to move to Italy <laughs> or I was going to move to San Francisco to work at some fancy restaurants or something. Um, I was kind of getting the itch to go back to California. Um, and then I just got a message out of the blue from the chef I used to work for. And, you know, they asked me, do you want to move to California and work with Chris Bianco? And I said, that sounds great. So that's how that got started. I learned a lot from Bianco. Um, you know, he, I'm lucky to have a lot of formative experiences uh, and how I've kind of gotten to this point. Uh, and I've taken a little bit of, you know, everything that I've learned, but I think what Chris did and what he taught me is he really focused in what I was doing. You know, I think he saw that I had, you know, some talent and I could, you know, I could cook, um, but really dialing in the simplicity. Um, I mean, when you try Chris's food, I always tell people this when, when you eat Chris's food, you don't have to think, you know, there's no, uh, it's very disarming because when you try it, there's nothing else that you need to say other than this is good. Um, and it just goes down to like simple rustic Italian cooking. Um, there's nothing that you have to tweezer. There's nothing. It's just soulful and nourishing. Uh, and I think ultimately it's what people want to eat. Um, so I'd say, say that's definitely the biggest thing I learned from Chris. Um, Chris is also an amazing uh, supporter of local farms. I mean, I kind of tell people he's like the Alice Waters of the Southwest. I mean, he, uh, I tell this story a lot um, because, 
you know, I am like to a fault will buy anything from a farmer. <laughs> like I, I remember I was in Phoenix actually and, and one of his farmers came in and he's like, I have some terrible looking dates and not even just like I have some, it was like 25 pounds of terrible looking dates, just smashed, you know, some of it's moldy and bought it without thinking about it. Just bought it, bought it all. Uh, and that's the kind of like wild and uh, blind support you have to have for, for local agriculture. Otherwise, you won't have a local agriculture anymore. Um, I mean, speaking for Houston too, it, you know, the weather's awful to work with here. I mean, it's so, so hard. I mean, if you think about it, you know, last February we had a freeze and then we went into a summer that rained nonstop. You couldn't even grow tomatoes in Texas. I mean, it's absurd. Um, and so that's something that I also took took with me from Chris. I mean, I, I tell all the farmers that we work with, I don't care what it is, um, bring it to me. Nine times out of 10, I'll buy all of it. Uh, and we'll make it work. I feel like that's that's our job in the kitchen. Um, you know, and that ta- that's hard. It's really hard to do, but if you have the repertoire and the skills, you can you can make magic out of some some uh, beat up dates. <laughs> All right. So what did you what did you do with with twenty five pounds of beat up dates? You turned it into like a jam or like a yeah. So we we used it a couple ways. So we made uh we used it in the bar. They made like a cordial with it, and then uh, we cooked it down into a syrup, and we. When we were cooking, so at Trotto, his pasta restaurant that is amazing, uh, they have these these pork chops. They're kind of like chuletas, so they're super thin. Um, and we would like baste them with the date syrup on the grill, and so they would really caramelize, and it was just fantastic. So, obviously, you know, you you come back to Houston, toting your wood burning oven. Yeah, you start Angie's Pizza. I mean, it basically goes viral, like almost immediately. What's it, what's it been like for you kind of coming back to Houston? Because my sense is from a food perspective, it's a very different city than the city you grew up in. Yeah, it has changed a lot. And I think, you know, for the better, I think we're having, um, we're having a lot of people coming from out of town which is odd. <laughs> you know, we never had restaurants like growing up. There's never a restaurant concept that came from New York City. Like, why would they even, why would they even consider Houston? But I'm, I'm more than happy to be back. Um, I tell people all the time that, you know, Houston is, is my home. I, I spent a lot of time out of Houston, kind of trying to find something that I thought it was as good. And I never really got there. I, I would say San Francisco is a close second, uh, but I love Houston through and through. Um, you know, it, it's funny because I, I moved from California and people a lot of times didn't realize that I was from Houston and they would, they would, you know, they would ask me and I always would correct people. I'd be like, no, I'm from, I'm from here. <laughs> I'm not from Los Angeles. I don't want to be from Los Angeles. Yeah. So I, I love the city. It's, it's definitely changed a lot, but I think in positive ways, um, you know, you're seeing a lot of young cooks uh, come back from from the cities they were in where they were learning. Um, you know, I mean, we just mentioned Emmanuel. He came from Seattle and Martha from Indianola just came back from Seattle. So you have like chefs who are from Houston coming back to town and kind of sharing what they've learned, um, which I think is the, the best way we can grow in the city. 
um, if we stay like insulated, you know, we'll ne- we're never going to uh, continue to grow. Yeah. So I guess talk about Angie's Pizza and how maybe maybe you sort of conceive of it as as different than some of the other pizza offerings around town. Not in a not in like a disparaging way, like their pizza sucks and my pizza is awesome, but like kind of what defines an Angie's Pizza. And then maybe what the status of that project is, because, it, you know, obviously we're get, we're then we'll talk about Cafe Louie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So Andy's Pizza, I think, you know, the defining factor is the simplicity. Um, you know, it is highly modeled after Pizza Bianco. I mean, we cook it the same way. We think about pizza the same way. Um and I'm super lucky to work with them closely to, to, to see that. Because before that, a lot of the pizza I was making was like more classic Neapolitan, uh, you know, like droopy center and all that. Um, but, you know, we, we cook it longer. We only use good flour. So it's actually funny. Bad flour makes good pizza, typically. Um, so like, for instance, pizzerias in... Uh, Italy, most of them use Caputo 00, which is actually farmed in a lot of times Canada and Ontario. And then they ship it to Italy and then it's milled and then they use it in Italy and then it's imported to America. (laughs) So, you know, you have all this, you know, change of hands to get essentially denuded kind of bad flour. Um, so that's a big part of our uh, our identity is our flour. So we use Barton Spring Mill, and then we use Cairn Spring Mill, which is out of Washington. It's the same same mill that Tartine uses. Um, and the flour is amazing. I mean, it's it's truly alive. Um, so that, and then you know, we make we make everything. We make everything that that you know someone can't make better than us. Everything else we buy, um, and that that is another thing that we care a lot about is our sourcing. I would say our sourcing is impeccable. I mean, we, the amount of time and hours and, uh, you know, experience too, because a lot of these places that we pull from are from places that I worked at and I've seen, Oh wow. Like this olive oil is insane, you know? Um, so I think that's a, that's a big, uh, a big part of our programming too. Um, to talk about where we are, um, it's a great question. I'm not allowed to say too much, but I will say we are actively searching for uh, what will be the pizzeria. Um, I think we are close to finding it, but we're, you know, documents haven't been signed yet. So we have to get to that point and then I, you know, we'll, we'll spill the beans. Uh, but we're really excited to, uh, finally make that happen i mean it's it's been on my mind for sure and it'll happen it'll happen when it happens (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean you know obviously you know uh mary was just on the show before you as as this week's co-host and she and i have eaten any number of angie's pizzas together and i I know she's been a big a big champion of it and and so have i so you know obviously we're rooting for you to find a a, you know a permanent home for the pizzeria because because we want it but but let's talk about Cafe Louis because that's kind of yeah. what you're focused on. I mean, maybe maybe just sort of describe the overall concept and, and maybe what its influences are because I, I don't think there's a lot of restaurants like it in Houston right now. 
So yeah, Cafe Louis is an all-day cafe, and I would say it is informed by a lot of our experiences in California. And when I say our, it's it's me and my sister, who is the namesake Louis. And you know, it it's hard to describe in a lot of ways. Uh, and the way I kind of uh, describe it is it's it's basically California cuisine in Texas. Um, you know, I talked about sourcing with with Angie's. Sourcing is basically the cornerstone of what Cafe Louis is. Um, you know, it's it's a lot of storytelling. Um, and, you know, I think places that we would compare it to are obviously Tartine. Tartine, you know, the, it's arguably the best bread in America. And some might say the world and, you know, vinoiserie and pastries are obviously a large part of their program we won't be doing bread at least not hearth like sourdough breads we will be making some breads but not it's not a bakery bakery per se but then and and croissant work is a big part of what we do another place i compare it to a lot of times is squirrel in la uh which is a counter service kind of vegetable forward uh restaurant um and it's basically I mean, if you took the American breakfast and flipped it on its head, um, it's kind of how I've been describing it as well. So instead of meat being the cornerstone of your breakfast and lunch, we kind of flip it. So we, we're really pushing, you know, vegetable driven. And a lot of that leans, you know, Mediterranean, Israeli, uh, French, Italian. And that's kind of where, where the food, the food goes. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much Cafe Louis. Yeah, so so maybe just describe a little bit, like like what might a what might a typical lunch or dinner meal at Cafe Louis consist of? Yeah, so a a typical lunch or maybe maybe a breakfast. Yeah, let's do that. So, I would say, you know, a pastry. I think you have to start with a pastry at Cafe Louis. I think the thing that will hopefully blow people's minds is a basic butter croissant, uh, which is one of my favorite pastries of all time. Um, and I think everyone's got to try a, a, a butter croissant when they come in. And then, you know, to add on to that, we have a lot of stuff that's kind of grab and go breakfast stuff. Um, some classic stuff, some not so classic. I think one of my favorite breakfast sandwiches that we're doing uh, is a, it's a gougere, which just, people who don't know it's it's basically a cream puff but it's savory uh and we we put um redneck cheddar from Veldhesen uh dairy which is out of dublin texas we put that cheese through the batter um and then we bake it and it's basically a, a fluffy airy savory cream puff we'll split it we'll griddle it uh and then we'll fill it with prosciutto cotto which is just ham <laughs> ham and dijonais and yeah it's just it's like the best breakfast sandwich. I've never actually seen someone use a gougere to make a sandwich, but uh, we actually did it. We did it for the first time at Village Farms, and I was like, "Holy crap, this is genius!" Um, <laughs> yeah, because it's like a cheese roll, basically. It's like yeah, a French it's version the of this foil. Yeah, and then we have some more stuff that's more substantial. I think a lot of the, the one that I've kind of been telling people that I'm really excited about. Um, we're doing a a lot of rice based. Uh, breakfast kind of stuff which I love that's like if I eat breakfast that's usually what I'm eating um, 
And we're doing, so it's Carolina Gold Rice, also comes from Barton String Mill, um, I think made famous by Anson Mill out in the Carolinas. Um, so it's, it is locally produced, which is really cool. Um, so it's Carolina Gold Rice. We mix it with uh, a Vaudu Vaughn, uh, which is basically a French curry. Uh, I learned it from the chef I worked for in San Francisco. Her name's Kim Alter at Nightbird. And funny enough, she learned it from Jeremy Fox, who's the Rustic Canyon group. And and Justin Yu used to work for for Jeremy. And so you'll see like T-Rex runs Vaudu Vaughn. So it's basically the same recipe, but we've tweaked it a little bit. Um, but the rice gets mixed with Vaudu Vaughn. Um, and then we're going to do basically two skewers, almost like a souvlaki. So it'll be the chicken thighs marinated with um, preserved lemon, some smoked chili, garlic, black pepper, a little bit of cinnamon. And then we're going to do also like a chicken meatball. Um, so it'll be the rice, two skewers, uh, a little green salad, a cured carrot salad, and a poached egg, which it, it's really good. It's one of my uh, favorite things on the menu. It hits the spot, and it, it's it's definitely like that's a that's a late lunch or an or, or a late breakfast, and and you're there to hang out and doom scroll on Instagram and drink a couple coffees. I mean, it's it's a good time. And then dinner. I mean, you know, you, you say dishes like that, and and I start thinking about like roast chicken or like uh... yeah, we have a a full dinner menu. So dinner will be a uh, a different animal. So. Breakfast and lunch up until about five o'clock. Um, we it's counter service, and then after that, it's going to be a proper dinner service. We'll have reservations. We'll have servers. Yeah, it's it's a different it's a different animal. Um, I'd say that the food the food is still uh, of the same vein that Mediterranean, Israeli, et cetera, et cetera, but just a you know a different way of ordering and eating. You know, we'll have the the little snack section. We'll have the small plates. Um, I think my favorite part of the dinner menu um, is we will have our we'll have a a section that's just dedicated to vegetables, and uh, all those vegetable dishes are pretty small. So I I I got this idea actually from Saba in New Orleans where they have the salad team section. You can get like a little thing of vegetables. They won't be as small as Saba's, but but that's kind of the idea. Is that the way I thought about it is you know, people, a lot of people in Texas are, are a class of meat and potatoes. And so if they see a, a beet dish that's $12 or more, they might feel like, oh, I'm not going to get that because I might be disappointed. So we're lowering the size and the price point. Um, so, so people feel like, oh, you know, I can get the $6 beet dish. If I hate it, I'll just throw it away or whatever. <laughs> um, but that's the idea. And like that, we, and it's going to, obviously be driven by the seasons um and what we have available we will be utilizing some produce from the santa monica farmers market in la um but it's really to fill holes it's not the majority of what we'll be bringing in um but yeah the dinner menu is fun i'm actually really excited uh to to do dinner there um i think it's gonna be i think it's gonna be great um we're hoping that it will happen kind of just depends on how things go. If, you know, we open and we're gangbusters and we can't even catch our breath. We're obviously not going to go right into opening dinner as fast as we can. The goal is a one or two months after we're open. All right. So that prompts the obvious question of when do you think? Yeah. Be <laughs> Ugh, man, I kind of want to like just post our uh, general contractor's phone number on here and just let people call him. 
Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's a great question. We felt pretty confident with this month. Um, there's still a chance we could get open by this month. Uh, it would be end of month. Um, so I'm going to say end of month or early April. And I feel very confident with that. We're very close to being done. I mean, there's not much left in our general contractor scope. It's mostly just final details. Um, we should, hoping, knock on wood, that we should be in the kitchen this week. And, and, and by that, I mean, we'll be testing stuff. So, so Louie needs to get in and, and test all our pastries. We've already tasted most of the savory menu, but, you know, there's a lot of cleaning, organizing, all that good stuff. So I feel confident with that answer. All right. And then you mentioned your sister, Louie. What is her role and, and what should we sort of know about her? Yeah. So Louie is the pastry chef. So she'll be running the whole pastry program. Um, so Louie, she kind of, she kind of got her start in cooking kind of serendipitously. I kind of pushed her, I feel like in a little, in a, a little bit, not really. I, I, I warned her basically. I was like, you know, this is really hard. Um, she seemed to be gravitating towards cooking um, and she fell in love with it in the same way that I did. And so I said, go for it. And I helped her get a job. So her first job was at Tiny's Milk and Cookies. Um, she started there, kind of cut her teeth and scooped a lot of cookies, which is good. Um, and then right from there, moved to California. I pushed her. I was like, look, I'm moving to L.A. Come open Tartine. <laughs> and she did it. She did it. Uh, and I'm super proud of her for doing that because it's hard. I think uh, a lot of people aren't like me and like, oh, I'll just throw my life away that I have here and move to California. But, uh, you know, then she started working at Tartine and she kind of did everything there. I mean, she she did ice cream. She did Vinoiserie. She did, uh, what's the other station? Oh, cake. Cake production. Everything. She did it all there. Um, and then I, after that, actually simultaneously because she's a psycho, she was working at a uh, lodge bread, which I put right up there with Tartine. I mean, they they produce amazing bread and pastry, um, and so she was working at both those spots. And then the pandemic happened, and I was like, "Hey, you want to move back to Houston? Because I got you a restaurant." <laughs> and so that's kind of how we got there. Well, and I'll say, I mean, you guys made pies, uh, yeah, around Christmas. And I bought a couple of them and they were like super flavorful, very well executed. Yeah. A, a huge hit with my family, which is always a good, always good for me. Yeah. Her, her, you know, her pastries are really nuanced. Uh, I would say they're not over the top sweet. Like they're not going to like blow your palate up, which is what I love about them as well. Um, but I mean, what you'll notice, and this is, this is super, you know, it's from the, all the California bakeries that we look up to and we've worked at. Tartine and, and lodge bread are about flour and flour qualities. Um, so you'll see like cookies made with rye. You'll make, you'll see, uh, you know, kolaches made with spelt, you know, stuff like that. Um, and maybe combinations, I wouldn't say that are weird, but maybe a little off from your classic, you know, almond croissant stuff. I think my favorite thing that she's doing, which we haven't tried yet, but I'm like more than confident it's going to be fantastic. Uh, so we're doing morning buns, which is a classic tartine thing. Uh, and basically it's a, 
you know, it's croissanto that's also been laminated with uh, trim. So it kind of messes up the lamination. And what happens is it makes it fluffier as opposed to crispier. Um, you bake it in a, uh, a muffin pan and Louis going to toss it in uh, sesame sugar. We get the sesame from Japan. It's a company called Watamon. They've been producing sesame since I think it was 1814. So they know what they're doing. Um, and then it's going to have uh, California dates running through it and a date puree. Um, so it's a little sweet and savory, not too savory. I'm really weird about sweet and savory. If it's too savory, it kind of throws me off. But yeah, we're we're super excited to see to taste things because you know we kind of been waiting to get that damn sheeter into the building. All right, and then I I know that it's it's supposed to be the lo- it's also the location of Giant Leap Coffee, right? So what's the yeah. connection between Giant Leap and Cafe Louis? So Giant Leap is our is our sort of our sister uh so giant leap uh which is logan obviously logan and lauren uh they're kind of our guiding light for how the beverage program goes um so we you know we have some similarities but but cafe louis in itself is its own entity uh we just kind of we kind of give and take so so you'll see i mean once we get open, there's going to be some drinks that will probably make its way to, to Giant Leap. Um, and they're also, they will have uh, our pastries there. And uh, they might be the only one for a decent amount of time. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of our connection. It's it's mostly, uh, I don't want to say superficial, that sounds bad, but but it, it's, it's mostly... Uh, collaborative that's a better word <laughs> <It's> collaborative. <laughs> we work together and we kind of feed off of each other um and obviously like you know giant leap uses a maya will use a maya a lot of the cornerstones of what makes giant leap great is what will make our beverage program great and we we're super lucky uh we have our beverage director hired uh her name is christian she worked at catalina for a while um and and she's awesome like we we've tasted a bunch of drinks so far and they're i'm like over the moon excited for y'all to try we, we've been doing this black sesame latte um and we do we do it with that same uh the company from japan watamon they make a black sesame taste that's absurdly good um and it, it it's all fantastic and, and we're doing some uh we're working on some stuff too like almost like he just Steve coffee stuff. That's really interesting. Uh, we tasted one. It was cold brew with a lime foam and rose from India. And it's really, really tasty, like amazing nightcap. Um, so I'm really excited for y'all to see, see what she's got going. Yeah. Well, and it, it sounds like pretty soon, I guess. So, you know, in the next yeah. uh, few weeks, it sounds like hopefully we'll be, yeah. we'll Not be eating morning food. buns, drinking sesame coffee. Yeah, that's a, that's a great combination. <laughs> well, I, I got to say that does bring me to the end of my questions. Is there anything else I haven't asked you about that you want to discuss? I think that's it. That was good. <laughs> All right. Well, before I let you go, we have to play the yeah. lightning round. Okay, here we go. Five easy questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Got it. Angelo Emiliani, what is your favorite cookbook? Oh man, you can't ask me a hard question like that. Um, I would say the first Vetri book. I can't remember what it's called off the top of my head, but the first Vetri book. 
All right. What is the first band you ever saw in concert? Oh, I think it's bad. I want to say Lenny Kravitz. <laughs> Who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? Uh, Nolan Ryan. What is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant with a drive-thru. <laughs> the breakfast burger at Waterburger. <laughs> and then finally, I, I've, I've been asking this to people. What is the newly opened Houston restaurant that you haven't tried yet, but you are dying to go to? Oh, um, there's so many, actually. Um, let's say March. I've been meaning to go to March. You should definitely go to March. I've been saving my pennies. Give us the website and social media and all that stuff for Angie's Pizza and Cafe Louie. Uh, Angie's Pizza is Angie's Pizza Pies on Instagram. And I think it's Angie's Pizza Pies.com for the website as well. I wouldn't recommend going to it. It's a mess right now. <laughs> but <laughs> Cafe Louie, uh, let me make sure this is right. I think it's Cafe Louie, Texas. Yeah, Cafe Louie, Texas, or TX, sorry, dot com. And then the Instagram is Cafe Louie. Check it out. We got some good stuff on there. Trying to keep everyone engaged <laughs> for the bear of an opening. Well, thank you very much. Of course. Of course. Thanks for having me. You can follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.